you're the one really that everything is about. The Colossians says everything was made by you and through you, but also for you. Even we ourselves and our lives and our hopes and our dreams. And I pray that you would give us joy in that this morning, that you would work um, not through my skillful speaking, but through your word and through your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that those who are appointed and called may hear you and know that they are loved. I pray that all may hear you and know that they are loved uh, and receive protection under your robe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, as I've shared a few times, I got revived in college and uh, within a few years became that guy who was basically at everything Christian that was happening. I... Spent six years in college and majored in a couple things and minored in something else, but really I majored in campus ministry. And uh, I never, you know, I had friends who knew from the time they were born they wanted to be pastors, and that was never me. Even at the time of my revival, I, I didn't know much, but I did know that I was not called to be a pastor, that I did not have those skills, uh, whatever they were, um, but that I could help out from the sidelines. Uh, but People in my life kind of encouraged me to think about it, at least because of the connection uh, and the work that God had done in my life, the connection that I had with him. And so by the time I finished my sojourn in undergrad, I decided maybe I would try this out with an internship. And so I applied to do a two-year full-time internship with one of the campus ministries that I'd been involved with, RUF. It's the campus ministry of our denomination. And um, just to do a you know, a quick trumpet, we're launching this fall, God willing, at University of Hawaii. Anyway, so um, applied to serve as an intern with them and had to go through an interview with the RUF committee, which is a gathering of pastors that serve in the committee uh, to oversee RUF. And so I had to interview with them, and I was let know in no uncertain terms that this was a real interview, and I needed to be prepared And they were going to ask me some questions, including some theological questions about my understanding of the scripture and the Bible. And so I went into this interview, knees knocking. I drove over to Covenant Presbyterian Church in Issaquah, Washington. And uh, in those days, the PCA in Washington State was uh, like here in Hawaii, where there were just a couple churches and we're just getting things going. And so the RUF committee in those days was Covenant Presbyterian Church Senior Pastor Eric Irwin, and Covenant Presbyterian Church Associate Pastor Dave Scott. And uh, they had a building that had a sanctuary in it, but nothing else. And so parked in the parking lot was a trailer that was the church office. And so you entered the trailer in the middle, and the secretary said, Eric Nathaniel's here. And on the left end of the trailer, from inside his office, Eric said, Dave, why don't you come down here? And so Dave came out of his office, and we both went into Eric's office. For my interview. And Eric looked at me and he said, so you want to go into ministry? I thought that you didn't want to go into ministry. And to understand this experience, it's helpful to know that Eric and Dave actually were the two guys who were encouraging me to go into ministry. (laughs) So I explained to them the change that had taken place in my heart and I was, you know, just at least wanted to try it out and do this internship. And so Eric looks at Dave and says, Dave, I'm satisfied. I think we're done here. Do you have any questions? And so Dave said, well, I feel like we should ask him something. And he asked me some really bizarre theological question. And Eric said, Dave, I don't even know the answer to that. (laughs) That was kind of my interview. 
And then Eric turns to me and he says, Nathaniel, it's not every day that you have the chance to give advice to someone who's about to go into ministry. So I'm going to take that moment. He said, I have two things to say to you. The first one is that all of the great men of the Bible, Abraham, David, Jacob, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them had a closer relationship with God than they did with anyone else or any human being. That what was foremost in their life was their relationship with the Lord and what he cared about them. And if you're going into ministry and you're going to be successful, you must have the same. Because only then will you be set free to say words that are true and good and also hard. And he said, the second thing I want to tell you is that the Lord has given you in your life things to do, and they're on your plate. And all of your life, you need to work hard to figure out what it is that has been given to you and what it is that hasn't been given to you, it's been given to someone else. And the stuff that's on your plate, you need to do that to the best of your ability. And the stuff that's not on your plate, you need to not worry about that. And he said, if more people knew this, (laughs) it would save us a lot of trouble. Because what's going to happen is there's going to be something that's on somebody else's plate, and you're going to feel like it's going poorly. And he said, what you've got to do is let that be Jesus' responsibility. Maybe you can share your feelings and then just say, this is going to melt down, and that's okay. It's Jesus' responsibility, and I'm going to go home and relax. He said, that's all I have to say. That was the end of my interview. And to this day, I think that that last little piece was a Holy Spirit moment. Because I've never forgotten those words. I remember to this day the phraseology and the way that he said them. And at least at some point in every single of the 11 years since then, I've remembered those two things and been helped by them. Uh, This is the Sunday after Christmas, uh, which is usually a relaxed Sunday. It's kind of a joyful Sunday because we're all kind of in the afterglow of digesting our Christmas food and the joy of the season and processing through our presence. But the other thing about the Christmas after Sunday that all assistant pastors know is that you're going to preach. This is my sixth Christmas here, and this is the sixth time that I'm preaching the day after Christmas. And it's always a one-off because you finish the Advent series, but you haven't really started the next thing yet, and it's the day after Christmas, so no one really cares what's happening that much anyway. And uh, so based on something that I saw in someone else, uh, I don't know if anyone knows this but me, but I've developed a tradition of taking the sermon the Sunday after Christmas to share something that the Lord has taught me in the last year. Because this Christianity thing is real and it's true and it still matters and we all need to keep growing, especially pastors, because we have a lot to learn. And uh, these two pieces of advice that Eric Irwin gave me 11 years ago are 11 years old but I feel like they really came home and were applied to my life in a new way this year through this passage that we're going to take a look at. And I want to share them with you. Uh, 2015 was a good year in many ways. Uh, It's always been a joy to know you all, uh, the congregation. It's the most encouraging thing about my job. Um, To be with you and to have the friendship of many of you and to see you grow and know your lives, and uh, as every other year, that was a joy this year. I only wish that I had spent more time with you all. 
Uh, it was uh, a joy and an honor to be able to kind of take on more responsibility and lead through Todd's sabbatical. It was a joy to have Todd come back uh, refreshed and renewed and be able to pass some things back to him. Uh, it was a joy to have Coniela Hughes, our intern, here over the summer and to have John Kim move to the island in preparation for starting RUF. Uh, it's really wonderful things about my year. It's also, just for me personally, it's been a really challenging year. Uh, and not to make this too much about me or share too many details, but I had points in the year where I had uh, close personal friends um, turn their back on me and say things that were untrue about me. Uh, I had other friends just not be there when I needed them uh, and abandon me in, uh, in hard times. Um, out of that, I felt some anger. And uh, I'll share with you what I heard someone else say once that I think is true, that anger is never alone. That anger is uh, sometimes a necessary emotion, sometimes a dangerous emotion, but it's a self-protective emotion, and it's always there to protect you from other emotions that are a little bit more sensitive, things like fear and shame and loss and uh, disappointment. And I was experiencing all of those things, and at probably the hardest point of the year, I finally gave way and let go of some of my anger and realized, really, really inside, I'm just real scared and shamed and afraid. And uh, so I tried to draw near the Lord and uh, had a quiet time. And in my scripture reading plan, the scripture that came up on that day was this passage from Revelation 19. And I'll read it in a second. Before I do, maybe... You also have experienced emotions like these at some point in your life. Maybe the last year, maybe today, maybe it's been years. But um, feelings of of loss, of death, or um, tension and disconnection in relationships. Um, Fear about the advancement rank structure in the military, which from what I hear and understand is just always a part of your life when you're in the military and what's going to happen when I get that look and what are they going to see in my documents and what happens if I don't get picked up for the next rank and what will people think of me and how will that affect me Um, I don't know what anger and fear and disappointment might look in your life but I'm sharing this with the hope that maybe some of you have some of that somewhere and so in the midst of all of that I turned to the Bible and I read this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and one sitting on it who is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And in that moment, I simultaneously cried and felt complete rest.
Not necessarily even because of the, the justice retribution aspects, but just because that's what Jesus looks like. And he's, if he's received you and forgiven your sins, he is for you and he's for me and we are in his hands and there's nothing else to worry about if this is who he is. And I felt completely safe and relieved. I want to take a look at why. I want to see two things from this passage. One... That you, that you can and you should have a closer relationship with Jesus than with anyone else. You should care more about what he thinks about you than anyone else. You should, as Jesus himself said, not fear he who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy body and soul. And then realizing that he who can kill the body and the soul has looked at you and said, grace and peace from me. And in knowing that, knowing that there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. I'm going to take a look at this passage and some of the things about this man. Well, the first one I've given away, the man, though not referred to as Jesus in this passage, is Jesus. This is this whole paragraph, this is a picture of Jesus. All the references to him in this passage, all the descriptions, all the pictures, almost all of them come from other passages, and all of those passages, it's clear that it's referring to Jesus. Jesus himself is referred to as faithful and true in Revelation 3. John calls him the Word of God in John chapter 1 and in 1 John. Um, Jesus is described as having a sword coming from his mouth in Revelation 1. Psalm 2, prophesying of the Messiah to come, says that he rules with a rod of iron. Isaiah 63 says that the Messiah will tread the winepress of God's wrath. And um, if you've been here in the last year, you're probably tired of me preaching about King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the great King. Um, but hang on, this is give me one more on this topic. Because uh, that's really what this sermon is about. Uh, I talked about it on Easter and a couple weeks ago in, in the beginning of Advent. I talked about the kingdom. That uh, this, I think, is the theme in the Bible for who Jesus is. He was born into the world. He was actually with the Father from the beginning of time to become what we couldn't do and to reign on the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These are all pictures of Jesus. And so getting those all put together in one paragraph, we can be very confident that's who we're talking about. Uh, Jesus is not named Jesus in this passage, but curiously, he does get four other names. I don't know if you noticed that, but when we read through, it says, and he is called, and he has a name, and he is called four times. And the first one is faithful and true. He is called faithful and true. It's not his name, um, but when... We look at Jesus when the angels and the saints and John look at Jesus. What they see is faithful and true. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says of himself, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That 
Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords is in your life, and he's always faithful. He will be faithful to you all the days of your life. At the time that I was in college, I went to a church in Seattle, and uh, there was an elder there on the church session who had been an elder at that church since before my mom was born, Al Van Winchell. And uh, he passed away a couple years ago, but you just have to know Al to understand. But here's a little picture. 2001, Seattle experienced the Nesqually earthquake 7.0. Day after the earthquake, Pastor Kelly comes by the church building to see how things stood up. And what does he find but 80-year-old Al Van Winchell on the roof, checking out the bricks on the chimney to make sure everything was okay. Um. And Al, every time we had corporate times of prayer at church, as we do here sometimes, Al would always say, Lord, you have been faithful to me all the days of my life. I thought, if this man can go through 50, 60 years of garbage as an elder, seeing what's really going on in the world and people's lives through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, if he married into a missionary family from Korea, and he can say that the Lord has been faithful to me all the days of my life, that is something. And it gave us all courage. And I can say that. And I hope that you can say that. And it doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. It means that even when they do, that he will be faithful. That you will not be alone. And he will... Bring, them, bring you through them. Uh, one of the old-time hymns says, Though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. He's faithful. He's also true. That everything that he's ever said, everything he's ever done in your life, in the scriptures, in the history of the world, it's all been true, good, and beautiful. He's done all things well. He is faithful and true. It's so much of the essence of him that you could call him that as if it was a name or a title. Faithful and true. He's also called the Word of God. Again, it's not, it's a name, but it doesn't say that it's his name. He just said, well, he's called the Word of God because he's so much like the Word of God that that's basically what his identity is. That Um, Hebrews 1 says that God spoke in many ways to our fathers by Moses and the prophets and through all these writings. And in Greek, literally, it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in son. That Jesus is the exact embodiment of what God has to say. Taken on flesh and physical form that moves around and interacts with people. That's what God's word looks like. John calls Jesus God's word in John 1 and 1 John. In Revelation 1, it says that um, there's a, John sees Jesus and there's a picture, and that picture, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth, just like in this passage, and the sword is the word of God. Do you remember from the Old Testament that the word of God is a sword dividing between bone and marrow? And in this passage, the sword is, um, is by which he will rule and strike down the nations. That he 
is the embodiment of what God has to say. And when he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords, he's going to be God's word, and he's going to enact God's word, and he's going to say things like, I said, care for the orphans and the widow and the the refugee. Because I brought you out of slavery and was gracious to you, and you are to be gracious to them. That's my word. Have you done it, O nations? And it's a terrible and a tragic thing and a glorious thing at the same time because when that happens, everything good that always should have happened will happen. That he will make with that sword God's word come true in every time and in every place. C.S. Lewis actually speculates that the power of that moment will be so powerful that the justice not only goes forward for that moment, but actually flows back in history. And from the, from the perspective of the kingdom at the end of the age, looking back through history, it will be as if he's also worked backwards through time and undone all of the evil things that happened. He's called faithful and true. He's called the word of God, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. This is my favorite part, by the way. I don't know what it means to have something written on your thigh, but it just seems really awesome. That's the image that sticks with me from this passage. It's just this big, strong thigh that somehow is carved into it. King of kings and lord of lords, as if anyone would have question. Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy 6, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. And he has a few things to say about Christ Jesus. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, which is, I'm the king. And to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That having walked with a lifetime with Jesus, having seen him once but known him spiritually. This is from 1 Timothy near the end of Paul's life. This is what he has to say about his friend and Lord, Christ Jesus, the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality. That um, all of these pictures come together to ask coming, him coming back and ruling with authority as our king in such a way that he will do all things well. But perhaps most importantly, he's called faithful and true. He's called the word of God. It's written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, but actually he has a name. Those are all what he's called, but he does have a name. And no one knows it but himself. He's so great. You you can't even contain it. In language, because in the Bible names have meanings, right? We actually this was this was my post Christmas sermon from a couple years ago about names and how name your your name is your meaning, 
and then how Jesus is going to give you a name, and then it's going to bring together all the pieces of your life, and you'll be like, ah, that's what my life was about. That's who I am. That's my name. Well, Jesus also has a name, and it's just you can't even just you can't even say it. No one can wrap their heads around it. No one knows it, but he knows it. He knows who he is. Also in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, if you knew someone's name, you had power over them. Jacob wrestles with the angel, and the angel says, What up, Jacob? And Jacob says, What's your name? And the angel says, "Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. The Egyptians... This is strange, but somehow this worked for them. They would actually make clay snakes. Two snakes, and one of them would be eating the other. So the head of one is inside the other. And then you would write your enemy's name on the snake that was getting eaten, and then you would write your name on the snake that was doing the eating, and it was a symbolical sign of power. We know this person's name, and we can place a hex on them. We can get them. We have power over them. We know who they are. And no one can control Jesus. Um, we've been reading Narnia at home, and so the, the Narnia references are going to keep flowing. Uh, Narnia is a series of children's books written by C.S. Lewis, and if you haven't read them, you should read them. And uh, the, the beavers say, safe. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And, uh, you know, no one meets Aslan without his knees knocking, unless they're just sillier than most or just plain dumb, that there's a sense in which Aslan, the great king, he's good, but you cannot control him. And he'll show up when he wants, and he'll do what he wants, and it's always good, but there's no knowing or controlling it. And Jesus is that way. He has a name, and no one knows it but himself. His robe is dipped in blood. His armies and all of his people, we found out earlier in Revelation, have robes that are made white because they've been dipped in his blood. I'm not quite sure how blood makes things white, but in Revelation, that's what happens. That when you're washed in Jesus' blood, your garments become shining white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can make them white, that kind of white. And Jesus' army behind them, they have white robes. He has a robe dipped in blood. And so, uh, in reading about this passage and asking questions about it, I wondered, is the blood that Jesus' robe dipped in, is it his blood? Or is it other people's blood? And according to all the commentators that I read, the answer is yes. that um, John loves to use analogies and pictures that work in multiple directions. And Jesus, having sacrificed his blood, has made all of us white through his blood and what he's done, and he spilled it himself. And it's on a robe. His robe is a sign of his triumph, that I spilled my blood. My own robe is, di- is dipped in my blood to provide the righteousness for all of you. But also, he treads on the winepress of God's wrath, of everything bad that has ever happened and how frustrated God is about it. And this, by the way, is can what make our anger sinful sometimes is when we just want to make somebody hurt. And what's wrong about that, in part, is because that's not our job. That's Jesus' job. And not to get all wound up in that emotion, 
there's a redemptive aspect too. He desires for all to be saved. But the sinful things that are done in the world, he's not happy with. And we need to know that. If we don't know that, we have a sick, cruel God who allows all this stuff to go down. But that's not how it is. And how it's going to be is that he's going to tread the wine press of God's fury, the wine being a sign of blood, and it's going to be on the bottom of his robe because he's treading in it. He's going to undo everything everything bad. He has the army behind him at his disposal, and he executes God's justice as our king. This is the one that we must have a closer relationship with than with anyone else. If you believed this, if you believed that Jesus, meek and mild, who welcomed the woman at the well and embraced her, and all those things that I've told you about before, and all those things were true, but also that he looks like this, how would that change your life? What is it that you're in the habit of saying that you would stop saying? If you believe that Jesus was really like this and living and active in the world and all-powerful and for you. And what is it that you don't say that you might start saying? And what is it at the bottom of your heart that you're most afraid of? Most disappointed by? And not that those emotions are inappropriate. That's actually not what I'm saying at all. But how would they change if you brought them to Jesus? I've been telling you this for six years. Emotions are not bad. In and of themselves, they can lead you to do bad things. But you need to bring them to Jesus, and he can handle them. He can handle your doubt. He can handle your disappointment and your shame, and your failures, and your anger at him. All the pictures of Jesus interacting with people in the Bible are him inviting people to bring their junk to him. And every time that happens, it goes well, and every time people are too cool and don't need Jesus, it doesn't go well. And if we remembered and worshipped with awe this Jesus how would it affect and change all those areas in our lives? You know, Tim Keller says, the one sure way to know that you do not understand this passage, this glory of Jesus, is if you are highly confident that you do. And I've always thought that I understand this passage, and I think that I understand it now. And for 11 years, since Eric Irwin gave me that advice, it's become more powerful for me every year. And it really happened this year. That I can curl up inside the protection of the robe of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is faithful and true, and nothing can hurt me. The second thing I want you to know about this passage is that this is not a picture of the future. There are a lot of pictures of the future in Revelation, and this is not one of them. There's nothing in this passage that says, and I saw in the scroll what was to happen, or I saw a vision of the things to come. What we hear is, then I saw heaven opened right now. And all the images are present tense. 
and the flow of thought, it's, it's, I think, clear that John is looking up and he's seeing what's happening right now. It's the same kind of thing that happened to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, where he was standing by the river, and he saw heaven opened, and he saw the glory of God, except in this case, it's not the Father's glory, it's the Son's glory. That at the end of the age, it will become clear to everyone that this is what Jesus looks like, but this is actually what he looks like right now. We just can't see it physically yet. Even in the moment of his crucifixion on the cross, it says somewhere that he have, could have called a legion of his angels to his disposal at that moment. The only way Jesus ends up on the cross is if he chooses to be on the cross. And if that's true, then he's living and reigning like this, not just in the future, but right now. So the second thing I want you to see from this passage is that you can trust him with everything that's happening in the world. That in the area that's given to you, that Jesus, Jesus has given you stuff to do well. Responsibilities in your work, responsibilities at home, responsibilities with yourself. And there's stuff that he hasn't given to you. It's not your responsibility. What is it that you're carrying responsibility for that's not really yours? And what would it be like to let Jesus be the king? And to not have to worry about fixing it, even if it was really bad. You're working in the Navy, and somebody punched a hole in the side of the ship. This is a bad analogy, but I'm, this is the best I got. And you're like, hey, there's a hole. And everyone's like, no, there's not. And you go to the captain, and you're like, there's a hole in the side of the ship. And the captain says, I'm not concerned. Okay. You've done your responsibility. The... USS Shiloh is going to sink. It's sad. It's bad. It's real bad. People might die. It's not your responsibility. And if Jesus wants to let the ship sink, he can sink it. Let go. Go home and have a beer. (laughs) And let Jesus be the king. He's going to fix all this stuff in the end anyway. It's so freeing. I think, especially as Christians, we're prone to this because we see the gospel and we see the future and we have hope for the life of the world and we want to see good things happen all the time in our life and our work and our children. We want our children to become Christians. We want the right person to get elected in our country. And some of that stuff we're more worried about than Jesus is worried about. And if you're really stressed and angry, really you're angry at him because he's not doing more to make things better. And so go ahead and go back to point number one and have that conversation with him and say, just just hand over the responsibility. This is your problem, Jesus. I'm irritated. I think it's bad. But it's clear that you've not given this responsibility to me. I'm giving it to you. Help me trust you. What does it look like to live this way? Uh, my wife was once at a church that we used to go to in St. Louis, and the pastor there, uh, Mike Higgins, was preaching on the story of David from the Old Testament, King David, from before he was king. And I borrow a closing illustration from the Bible. You can do that every now and then. Um, also, the, um, the climax of this illustration is, carry the cheese for Jesus, but give me... Give me a minute to explain that. 
So the Israelites are fighting against the Philistines. The Philistines are winning. They're big and scary. The Israelites are small, and they're not scary. And all of David's older brothers, the, the real men, are fighting the war. And David's at home taking care of the sheep. And finally his dad says, why don't you wander on over to where, they're fi- where the real men are fighting the battle, and why don't you carry them some snacks, cheese and crackers, and what will you? That's David's assignment. So he wanders on over to the camp where all the real men are fighting the war and offers them their cheese and crackers. And the real men look across the valley. And what they see is a big, imposing army. And they're terrified, and they're getting the snot kicked out of them. And uh, David says, "Uh, Who are those people? to taunt the armies of the living God. And I do not know how this happened, who thought this would be a good idea, but somehow the cheese boy ends up out in the field by himself with no armor, because he can't even fit in it with nothing but a sling. There's some sort of military failure of leadership there. (laughs) And he takes the giant down. Because all the real men saw the big scary army over there and the little army over here. And what David saw was the army over there and right behind us, the king of kings and the lord of lords with all the power of the army arrayed in heaven and the pre-incarnate Christ who is faithful and true, clothed in a white robe dipped in blood, who is the word of God. And who are those little people? to taunt us when we've got this standing right behind us. That he was able to see what no one else could see and could live in a different way because of it. In Prince Caspian, also from the Narnia series, Aslan shows back up and Lucy is the only one who can see him. He's right there and no one can see him but Lucy. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, no, I'm not. You're bigger. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And in C.S. Lewis's story, it's the little girl who sees the king arrayed as he is. And through her faith, eventually everyone else comes along and is able to see the lion. What would it be like for us to live with the kind of security and confidence and rest, even in the midst of abandonment and persecution and your own stupid stuff that you do over and over again, to know that right behind you is this Jesus, born in a manger, now ascended into heaven, and arrayed like this and active right now as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray and give him some worship, and come to him as our only hope.